Suki chuk shing me tok chan Rira blim shing yin deg yin padi Sangye shing du ik te uwagi Jokun andak shing la chupashok Yidam guru radnam andalakam niryatayami Chudang Saki Chuknam La Jang Chu Vardu Dakni Kapsuchi Daki Chenyan Gi Pe Sunam Ki Jola Penchir Sange Jupashu Chudang Saki Chuknam La Jang Chu Vardu Dakni Kapsuchi Daki chenyen ki pe sunam ki Jola penchir sangge jupasho Sangge chaknam la Jang chu vardu dakni kyamsu chi Daki chenyen ki pe sunam ki Jola Penshir Sangye Jupasho Go right into meditation. Start by just relaxing the body. Starting with the eyes and the forehead. Just feeling tension releasing from the inside out. Maybe the sense of a smile at the eyes. jaw unhinging, the tongue relaxing from the root of the tongue, and the mouth softening from the inside out. Feeling the throat relaxing, feeling it from the inside out. And both shoulders melting, all tension melting away. Feeling both of them from the inside out.
infinite volume of both arms. Feeling from the inside out. And softening both hands. And softening again. Feel the belly soften with each out-breath. And this out-breath. And then this one. And the pelvis softening, feeling from the inside out. volume of both legs from the inside out. And all the sensations in both feet. Feeling the whole body at once. And from this still place, being aware of the breath moving. tingling the warmth in the body, the sounds around you. Just from a very still, clear awareness. Whenever a thought comes by, which it will, noticing how everything tightens and just relaxing back into open awareness. So there's not so much a sense of doing or trying, but more of not doing and letting go.
medication come to mind? Making your dedication. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and start to move. Is that meditation like magical for you guys? I think it is too. It's not, it's Tara Brack. That's, I'm basically just doing exactly what she teaches. But it's like going into more of a shamatha practice through that way of relaxing the body. It just gets me to a place where it's not, like I'm not trying as hard. It's not as difficult or something. I don't know. I really, I really like it. Well, that one's, I'll email you the link to her meditations. She does that in almost everyone that she leads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has kind of like a formula. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what class are we on? Class four, Escaping Uncertainty, a study of Buddhist ethics, and today is Wednesday, October 3rd. I think I'm recording, yes. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the one-day lifetime lay and novice monk's vows. The novice monk vows just a, just a little bit. So let's do a little bit of a review, just very short review this week. Um, what is the meaning of Vinaya, of the word Vinaya? Nochu Dharma Bhadra, one of the main predecessors of Papanka Rinpoche, Ken Rinpoche's teacher, who was Geshe Michael's teacher, um, said we call Vinaya Vinaya, and we call discipline discipline because the subject matter of the scriptures on discipline which is the seven rules and all their friends, function to discipline the mental afflictions and also functions to discipline your sense organs. So we went over that, I think, in maybe the first or second class. And so what do we say... Like, what's the importance of practicing and studying ethics? Why do we study it? What, like, why does it, why does it matter? There's, a, there's more than one answer, but, or like, what do you think too? It doesn't have to be the specific answer that we've talked about. Well, it helps us get out of our mind, or get out of some part of it. 
Um, so it's, you, have any, you want to add anything? I mean, kind of like what you said, like discipline our mental afflictions. Yeah, to start to discipline our minds so that we can be rid of all of the suffering. Um, and I think that we still get, at least I do in, in our culture, get this idea of, or this feeling that ethics or morality are kind of heavy, like it's something that we should do and we're bad if we don't do it, like, you know, something that we've gotten from our our bigger culture, um, our bigger society, and the idea that they're more, they're kind of, they're like the words of an enlightened being guiding us each day on how to get free of all of the shitty things that we have in our world, really. Because we don't know, like we're kind of in the dark. We, we can't see directly, or at least I can't, how the things I'm doing are creating all my suffering that I have in my life. I've created all of it. Nobody else did that for me. You know, maybe me in a, a last lifetime or something, but we're doing that constantly. And so these vows are words of, the enlightened beings who are saying, like, hey, this is what you need to be doing so you can get what you really want, which is true happiness, to be free of suffering, and then, you know, to be able to help other people do the same. So I think it's good to remember that because when we're going through lots of lists and that sort of thing, it can be kind of easy. Like, even me preparing the class to just um, forget what the purpose is or or why we study it. Because as Steve mentioned a few classes ago, like what's the point, why do we care about these things? And so that's, that's really the, what it comes down to. And it doesn't mean that we're gonna practice all of these vows or take all of these vows, because some of them are, we're going into a little bit of monks and nuns vows, but it's a really good background to have in studying Buddhism to understand how the monastics live and over time or maybe even now we can start to see the benefit of doing those certain practices that the monks and nuns do which we'll talk about um, a little bit later today okay from last week I don't know why this doesn't work on Tuesdays <laughs> why? Oh. because you have it on a PDF huh? yeah and Mark had it in Oh, okay. What did Pamela have the week before? I don't know. I wasn't here. Probably oh, because her, yeah, because hers was like doing the funky thing where it goes like halfway up. Uh, okay, maybe that's what it is. Okay. Um, we went over last week. I'm trying not to say so because I say it a lot and I've noticed it, so I'm trying not to, and it's kind of hard. <laughs> um. Okay, we went over this last week. Um, how the vow stays in each person who takes the vows, basically. Like, how does it exist? How does it work? How do we carry it around with us? And we went through all of these different schools, and we talked about how they think about how the vows stay with you. And at the beginning of this class, Geshe Michael goes into it again because he 
said he felt like it wasn't very clear in the last class. And we'll go into it just a little bit, and then um, we can see if it makes it any clearer. It's confusing to me. We'll see what you guys think. Like the different schools or mm -hmm. the actual both, yeah, what the different schools think. He said um, a Kagupa from the 13th century called Sotik, he got into what the vows are made of and he made it more clear. This is what Kesha Michael said. He says, Sotik says that the sutras, which are, where? Number two. Sautantrika or Sutra school. He says that the sutras believe that when you take the Pradimoksha vows, which are the vows of individual freedom, that they exist as a continued intention to give up bad deeds. Okay, that's what he says that the sutras say. For example, if a monk's about to do something bad and remembers he has a vow and doesn't do it, which is pretty simple, straightforward. This is uh, the vows according to the sutras. Then mind only comes in. There's sutras. Mind only, chittamasha or yogacharya. Mind only comes in and they say, what if a monk is in deep meditation or deep asleep? To the sutras, are you saying that he loses his vows at that point? Then the sutras say, how could he break his vows if he was in deep meditation anyways? <laughs> what are you saying if, if they have these thoughts in their mind? If, yeah. Or if he's asleep and is in control of his thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, yeah, they're saying, it, does he lose his vows if he's asleep or if he's in deep meditation? And the example given, there's a vow that if you have, if a monk's been assigned to take care of all the monk's mattresses, and they've been hung outside, and this monk has been told to watch them in case it starts raining, and then the monk goes and meditates in his room and goes into deep meditation, if during that meditation it starts raining and the mattresses get ruined, then he's broken his vows while he's in deep meditation. So, oh, see, I said it. The vow has to be more than the conscious thought, I shouldn't be doing this. The mind only school says we have to add the bakchak or the seed for that vow. Result talking here. Then we move on to the vibhashika. Do you remember which one that is? It's um, Abhidharma. Abhidharma school or detailist, which is very confusing to remember. That school, Vibhashika detailist, Abhidharma school, says that if somebody is sitting in the front of the abbot, who's the head of the monastery, and they have this intention not to break the vows, and they're just about to get the vows, then they should have the vows, but they don't have them yet what they say. They're like debating back and forth these different schools. They say that's, that's not enough to think about it. It must be the physical restraining of doing the, the bad deed. 
And then people give the Vibhashika school a hard time and say, what about the 10 minutes later when he's gone out of the room and he looks like a normal person, the monk who just took the vows? You can't tell that he has vows. Someone else can't tell. Then the, Ab the Abhidharma school, aka Vibhashika Detailist, gets in the, into the idea that the vow is an aura that's carried around. Then the Prasangika, which is here, the Manyarika Prasangika, consequence school, our school, comes along and says that you have the mental continuum of the vows. That's what the Manyarika Prasangika school says. You have the mental continuum of the vows. If you have vows, where are they? What's the difference between someone who has them and who doesn't? The highest school, or the Prasangika school, says the physical restraining of your body and speech as you're thinking about it. Does that seem clear? Can you say it again? The whole thing. <laughs> um, the high, okay, so this last little part says, Prasangika comes along and says that you have the mental continuum of the vows, which to me, that makes the most sense. Um, and then, we, I guess Michael goes on to say, the highest school says the physical restraining of your body and speech as you're thinking about it is the difference between someone who has vows and someone who doesn't. which I think are two ways of saying the same thing, but that one doesn't quite make sense to me. And the mental continuum of having the vows makes sense to me. But maybe the other one um, makes sense to someone who just thinks a little bit differently. And I can see how the mental continuum of the vows and the physical restraining of your body and speech as you're thinking about it could be the same thing. Just two different ways of saying it. Because they're both still talking about, um, they're both including the mental continuum. Okay. What do you guys think? Does that clear anything up for you? Or was it clear last week? <laughs> like this, 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 no? This <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, basically, the sutras, They say that vows are an intention, basically, to give up bad deeds. And then the mind only says you have to add the bhak chakra, the seed for the vow, too. And then the detailist, or Abhidharma, Vibhashaka, they say it also has to be the physical restraining of doing the bad deed. And they also talk about the aura of the vows. 
And then the Prasangika says you have to have the mental continuum of the vows. In one sense, they're all very similar, but they're not, but they're not the same thing. But they kind of have the same flavor. To me, it seems like they build on each other. Okay. One, two, three, nice. Okay, we're going to go into Jason Papa's additional division of the sets of individual freedom vows, a.k.a. what are those called? Individual freedom vows. Starts with a P. Pras, 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 right there. And Jay is like, that's not his first name, that's an honorific, like Lord or um, something along those lines. Yeah, Master. And then Tsongkhapa. Um, okay, so, see I say so a lot. Okay, now Jay Tsongkhapa splits the vows into two groups one that relates to householders and who are householders. People? Yep, like we are, basically. And non-householders would be... Mm-hmm. The first division, say, Kimpe Chok Ki Dompa. Kimpe Chok Ki Dompa. Second, Rabjong Chok Ki Dompa. Okay, the first one are, refers to three sets of vows that relate to those living the family life. The lifetime layperson's vows for men and women and the one-day vows, which we will we'll go over tonight. The second one are the five sets of vows that relate to those who have left family life, ordained monks or nuns. And rabjung, it's not actually a type of vow. It's where you undergo a ceremony where you agree to leave the home life, and you can wear robes. You can go to a monastery and start to get ordained. These, and these are the kids that you see running around at the monastery in robes. The little kids. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Normally, you take a rabjung commitment before you take ordination. Say someone has their lifetime lay vows, but not ordination, where would they fall? And that's why they say, relate to in the definition. You know, it says the five sets of vows that relate to those who have left family life. Um, because They've taken lifetime lay vows, but not ordination. It's like they aren't completely in the first, and they aren't completely in the second yet of these two. They're not completely the householder, but they're not completely um, a monk or a nun yet either. And uh, from what Geshe Michael says in this class, this is a big deal in the Vinaya. 
Okay. Now we'll go into what exactly the vows are. The one-day vows say nian ne. Nian ne. Which means one-day vows. And there's eight separate commitments, four primary, four secondary. Basically, you're trying to live a single day um, like a person who doesn't have any bad thoughts. Which, I don't even know what that would be like, honestly. There's just so many that happen in one day. The four primary vows are number one, say, Mi Sang Chu. Mi Sang Chu. And this means not clean activity. It's referring to sexual activity. Adultery is the most serious. The second, say Ma Jin Len. Ma Jin Len. And that translates to not taken, given, which basically means stealing. Taking anything that has not been given, which is of any noticeable value. And I remember, um, what's her name? Venerable Tenzin talking about how. She was trying to practice this one really, really strictly. And she would go and stay at her friend's house and wouldn't take anything unless it was given. Not shampoo or conditioner in the shower. <laughs> not tea. <laughs> maybe she, I don't know, maybe she did it at the time. Maybe it was oh, before. I don't know. I don't know if she specifically said that, but I remember her saying it. Yeah, and she said it got to the point where she would go to this friend's house and she would just say, like, specifically, you can use this, you can use that, you can have this, you can have that, so then she would actually be able to take them. Yeah, because what would that really... Even if you go to a coffee shop and you get a cup of coffee, you couldn't take the cream and the sugar, a stir stick, a napkin, like I take, when I get to-go food and I get a bunch of napkins, I take the napkins and I put them in my car. I mean, usually they gave me the napkins, but sometimes I take extra napkins and put them in my car. So if you were, take, if you were taking it really strictly, that could be, you could say that that is like a concentric circle. Okay. Um, classically, they try to put a limit on this. If you steal a pen from work, does that count? And usually the guidelines given is somewhere between a quarter and a dollar. That's where it would count. Anything less than that? Probably not. The bottom line is something that someone would feel that you stole. When would your boss start to object? Or when... When I'm at the coffee shop, how many napkins could I take before someone, like, said something? Because usually I'll take, I'll be getting a napkin for my coffee, but I'll take a few extra to put my car to have. And I don't, I, it's funny that I'm even mentioning this, because I don't even really ever think about it. 
but maybe it's something that I should not do if, I'm, if it's coming up. But if I took the whole stack of napkins, somebody might really miss that. I'm not sure if they would say something. They might be too shocked to say anything, but, <laughs> but if you see someone come in and get a coffee and take all the napkins in the whole dispenser or the whole stack. Obviously, it's not good to steal anything, but the, gui the general guidelines are, would someone object? Would someone feel that something had been stolen from them? The third say sokchu. 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 And that is life to cut. And this means killing a human or human fetus. And a lot of these, I mean, almost all of these are completely, not completely, but widely accepted in the culture that we live in. Stealing things, it's accepted in, in a lot of people's minds. Not Maybe not something huge, but, you know, you make like, a ton of copies at work, or you cheat on your taxes, or, you know, like, things like that are accepted. Those are stealing. This as well, so a lot of these that we're going to go over aren't necessarily going to be super popular or, or really widely accepted, but it doesn't mean that they're not the right thing to do for what reason. How are they the right thing to do? Like, why would we not do the bad things? Like these ones? Or these are just like fundamental things of being a good human being, I guess. Kind of, right? Yeah. Being a good human being. It'll get us where we want to go. It'll get us where we want to go. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to... It's going to cause us less harm. Mm -hmm. It's basically for the benefit of ourselves. And if you're talking about bodhicitta, it's for the benefit of ourselves so that one day we can be free of the suffering completely and help other people do the same. But it's not like there's some self-existent something out there telling us that we're bad and we're going to be punished if we do these things. It's because we're planting karmic seeds and they're going to hurt us. That's what's going to happen. So that's, that's why all these are here. And maybe we can't see the reason behind all of them, but in some way, doing all these things, probably even to a very small degree, will cause us pain in some way, and that's why they're here. If we come across them that we're not sure about and we don't necessarily agree with right now, we don't have to, but it's good not to reject it. Just put it on the shelf and then come back to it later. And this one, this one's actually debated in our society killing a human or human fetus. In Buddhism, it's very clear. Consciousness enters when the sperm meets the egg, and therefore abortion is a serious misdeed. If you think, like, if you think that, then it's very clear that that would be killing. And this is the classic in the Buddhist scripture. They always say killing a human or a human fetus. There's no debate, absolutely cannot do. And there's also no debate when consciousness happens.
It's when the sperm meets the egg. The fourth one say zun ma. Zun ma. This is false to speak, and this is talking about lying, especially about your spiritual life, and in particular about seeing emptiness directly. I really cannot imagine lying about that, but maybe it's because I've heard this so many times over the years, over and over and over, but I just can't imagine doing that. Why would it? I have no idea. Maybe if you're trying to impress somebody or... Yeah. Like, lying about that seems really weird to me, but maybe it's it comes up over and over and over, so probably someday in my spiritual path it'll come up and I'll be like oh that's what this is because that's usually how it happens a lot of these advices that Gisha Michael gives in these classes I'm like this doesn't come up for me and then five years later it comes up and I'm like oh that's what this is okay so and maybe in a monastic setting it might be more common like if if you were surrounded by practitioners all day and you know there's like a hierarchy and you want to be noticed or something like that that would make more sense to me where it could happen like there's not there's a very small handful of people that would even care if I said something like that anyways like you know like most of the people I know wouldn't even know what I was talking about so it wouldn't make much sense for me to lie about it have you guys you guys have been studying for longer um, have you guys ever had someone say that to you Mm-mm. Yeah. Okay. It just seems like... I've, I mean, there's teachers that I think have and who, in my mind, I think they've, like, implied it. Yeah. But never I've never heard anybody say it okay. outright. Anyways, that's the classical lie, saying you've seen emptiness directly when you haven't. I could, I can't understand if you really thought you had, then, then I don't think you wouldn't be lying. Because if you truly thought you had, you would be, you would be telling the truth as far as you knew. You also have to stop Right, because it's not really helpful for people. So... The basic guidelines are if you've seen emptiness directly, you would know it. There would be no question at all. You'd be completely sure. I can't imagine you'd be completely sure. But I have heard Lama Ami talk about a lot how, how people think certain other experiences are seeing emptiness or enlightenment or something like that. And that's why I think it's lucky to study in a lineage that tells you all of these pitfalls. And maybe, maybe all of them do, um, but I've mostly only been in this one. But it's really helpful to know the pitfalls so then we can identify it when we see it and avoid it if we see it in ourselves too. Let me see what page one. Okay, we'll go for like... 10 or 15 more, and then we'll take a break. Okay, four secondary vows. Number five, say mel che te. Mel che te. Mel che te. Mel che te. Okay. Seat, 
bed expensive lofty. <laughs> and basically, this is luxurious furniture. Using or enjoying big converts, not living simply. I got water all over me. Okay, and what are so what are we going over? What is this list like? We're going to have the one day task. And this is kind of, um, okay, well, the idea of this is that for one day you're supposed to live simply, which is the spirit of this vow. It's like trying to live like a person who is incapable of having a bad thought for one day. And I guess what you can take from that is that someone who wasn't capable of having a bad thought for one day would live like this. This is what their life would look like. Yeah, it would be living simply. So if you're doing the one day vows, you already have the things. Um, like, do you have to throw them out or something? <laughs> 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 or you can just like go in the forest and sit right there. And I mean, it'd be interesting just to try for a day, anyways, even if not taking the vows, and just see what it would be like maybe within our own daily life to live a lot more simply. And I, number eight for sure, I think would make a huge difference. But we'll, we'll get to that one. Number six, say Chang Tung. Chang Tung. And that's beer to drink. This one's referring to drinking alcohol, using intoxicants. Anything natural or chemical that lowers your inhibitions. And Chang is a Tibetan beer. The scriptures always say here that it doesn't matter whether it's a naturally brewed alcohol or some kind of chemical concoction that has been put together. It covers all intoxicants. For a monk, it's quite strict. But in general, a modern day teacher's advice would be to take some Novocaine if you need it. You know, that sort of thing. The point is, does it lower your inhibitions? And mostly, if, personally, if something's available that will help my body, I take it. Like, allergy medicine, I'll take that every day. If I have a headache, I'll take an aspirin or an ibuprofen. Because it's also about kindness and taking care of the physical body, not kind of trying to punish it because, I don't know, because we're trying to be natural or we think that ibuprofen's bad or something like that, you know? Like taking care of your body. And of course, you know, the allergy medicine I take, I don't see any side effects either. It's just taking care of the allergies. It's not like I'm feeling, my inhibitions are not lowered at all. 
as with the ibuprofen. If I had a surgery, I would take whatever painkiller they gave me. And maybe it would be difficult to get off of it when I was supposed to get off of it. But I've also heard that taking, like not feeling the pain helps the body heal faster too. That's, you know, as, I, kind, I think I kind of see this too. As, as we study longer, especially in the higher teachings, it's very important to take care of the physical body. I mean, of course, we take care of the mind, but this is the only body that we have in this lifetime, and we have to treat it well and treat it nicely, care for it. And the more caring we are towards ourselves, then we can show that to other people, and we'll have other people treat us that way too. There's some sense in, that I see in our world where we have to punish ourselves or our bodies or something like that. And it's just kind of like, it's kind of sad, you know, to the, because it, in a way, you know, the mind and the body are together and in a way they are separate. So if we're punishing the body, there's some sadness that's, that's there in the physical form and it translates and we feel that and it seeps into our feelings, our mind. Okay, number seven, gar soak. Treng soak. Gar soak treng soak. Gar soak treng soak. Okay, this one's dancing, singing, playing music, wearing flower garlands, perfumes, jewelry, and cosmetics. And the idea is that these things lower your inhibitions and disturb your meditative concentration. I'm not sure that I am at this level of meditative concentration yet. Because <laughs> I wear perfume, jewelry, and cosmetics pretty much every single day. But I wonder what it would be like if it would make a difference if I didn't. Maybe for a weekend or something like that. So these cross over into the, the some of these, are, are these also in the, the monk vows or? Some of them, yeah. Because you know you see I like, think, I think all of these are. You see, you know, you see people at like the monastery and they're playing music and dancing and stuff. And you do? I've seen that before. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen, you know, documentaries where they're dancing and playing music, so. Yeah. They were, they were like that nomadic type jewelry. I believe, and I don't know for sure, but um, what is it, was it last time we talked about where they do the intense summer retreat and then they have like a three-week party where they can relax and like listen to music and dance and see movies. Maybe that's what, what they're doing. And I have seen um, in like rituals jewelry and that sort of thing. I don't know for sure, but maybe that's what it is. And then also, these are the, these are the monks' vows. And then there's also, uh, there's tantric vows. You know, there's bodhisattva vows. There's all these different levels and layers of vows, so it depends what vows people have. And, and not that one necessarily trumps the other, but 
it becomes a little it's a little more complex and there's there's more than just these once you have these and then a few other sets on top of it too and it's funny because what Geshe Michael said which I was just going to say is whenever you get to this point Westerners have a lot of objections. <laughs> and he said, usually they'll say, what about religious dancing, holy dancing? If I feel like it's religious, is it all right? And mostly this refers to something like going out to a club and dancing. Activity that would lower your inhibitions, and then you start to do something else that you shouldn't be doing. And remember there, because in some way they're going to be harming us. At most levels, these three activities in almost any form will disturb your meditation. If you're trying to reach shamatha, or that perfect focus, which we have to for being able to see the direct perception of emptiness, these do, this does disturb your mind. And then they would actually block you from seeing emptiness. In that case, you would maybe stop it for a while, stop these things for a while. In the secret teachings, there may be some time where it's appropriate, but we're not, we're not talking about that here. But if we reach a certain state of shamatha or very close, these will definitely disturb your mind. And even just if you're on an everyday level, these sorts of things might feel like they calm us. If it's something like a nightclub, it might feel like it hurts us, even at an everyday level. But if we're trying to reach shamatha, we're going to have to avoid these things at some point. He also says if you're a huge yogi and you're doing these types of practices, it could be helpful. So it's not a hard and fast rule. And in the Vinaya, there's a thing called Dong, which means it's referring to if you have two spiritual activities and one is higher than the other, then you have to choose that one. So it really, it really depends. But even, even like a deep daily meditation, when you come out of it, you're you can tell that you're more sensitive to things from any retreat, when you come out of a retreat, even if it's not that deep of a retreat, things are really overwhelming. Like driving music, way too much. You can just, you can tell once you get your mind more still, these things are really disturbing to the, to the state of mind, to the peace of mind. It doesn't mean that they're bad out there on their own, independent of us. You know, it's not like they're bad things. They're just not going to help us get where we want to get. If we want to see emptiness directly in deep meditation, our mind won't be able to get there with these things. Okay, and number eight, say Chidro Case. Chidro Case. Chidro Case. Chidro Case. Afternoon eating. Eating afternoon time makes you feel heavy and disturbs meditation. I don't think I've ever done this one. 
not eating afternoon, I'd basically eat three meals every single day of my whole life. But on the one-day vow, you would keep this vow that the monks take and you wouldn't eat afternoon. And I guess the bottom line is that our hots don't eat much. They eat once a day. And then they're done, which you could see. So there's no more dishes, no more grocery shopping, no more cooking. There's, no, there's not all the stuff that you have to do, which takes up a lot of time. And especially on retreat, you can start to notice this, how much time food takes up, even when someone else is cooking for you. It's like six hours out of the day or something like that, the whole process. <laughs> well, I'm like thinking about it, like when am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Yeah. Oh, I need a snack. I gotta go get a snack. Oh, I need tea. I need to get some. I mean, I think they still drink, but I don't think they're like not having water or tea. This is very true for me, though. Yeah. I'm not sure about the heaviness and disturbing meditation because I've, I've never done this one. You also eat very light. You think so? Maybe. Yeah, you do it for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. When I did, I had delicious, amazing pizza at Three Forks up in Nevada City. And it was full dairy, full gluten. I felt so heavy. It was so delicious, but I felt so terrible after. I forgot what that feels like. I ate like more than I would normally eat, too. So that in that way, I could see how that would totally be true. And when the monks take this vow, usually they keep it for a while and then they start eating in the evening. But what Geshe Michael says is they're really supposed to keep it their whole life. Of course, if it would hurt your body not to eat in the evening, then you're supposed to. Um, especially to keep yourself strong and healthy. None of... Almost none of these are completely black and white. Common sense is really important in all of them, too. And if you've taken the higher vows, which I mentioned a little bit ago, it's even more important to take care of yourself. Do what's sensible and compassionate towards yourself. For monks, you can't stretch the rules of celibacy. There's not any case where it would be compassionate to break that one. The other ones, you know, they're, they're a little bit more flexible from what he's saying. And the reason, which we mentioned before, for taking one-day vows or any other of the individual freedom vows is to escape samsara, which is a mental state. The goal in the Vinaya is to reach nirvana. So that's why we're talking about nirvana in, the, in this course, because we're in the Vinaya. <clears throat> okay. I think we will take a break now.
there's another Wendy Bao. Say Tekchen Sojong. Tekchen Sojong. Tekchen Sojong. Tekchen Sojong. And this is Mahayana Repair Purify. And this is the one day Mahayana vow of purification, which sounds really cool. This is a current practice in Mahayana schools. I don't remember hearing about this. I mean, I obviously studied these courses, but I don't remember this. Where um, you would get up before dawn, take the eight precepts, then you lose the vow the following morning at dawn. And apparently this is a thing because it was mentioned before, when you can see the lines on your palm from the sun, then your vows are over. And what's the difference here? It would be the motive. Prati moksha is to get away from samsara and reach nirvana, where you'll never ever be unhappy again, it's impossible. But the motivation of the Tekchen Sojung is to reach enlightenment and bring everyone else to that same goal. Bring everyone else along with me. And there's this detail that if a full monk takes a novice monk, the vows again, that it ruins the full monk vows. You can't go to a lower ordination without giving up the higher vow. A monk can happily take this vow, but then they couldn't take the other one day vow as it's lower. This is a Mahayana practice. The goal is to get bodhicitta. Basically, you take the other eight with the motivation of bodhicitta. All right, and then lifetime layperson vows say gain yin. Gain yin. Lifetime layperson's vows. These are easy to keep um, and they include five serious bad deeds. The five vows are the same for men and women. And these, I mean, you'll see these are similar to what we were talking about before, to the one-day vows. Number one, killing a human or a human fetus. Technically speaking, all of these are pretty easy to keep because they're big bad deeds. They're not the tiny little details. They're kind of like the big thing, except maybe abortion in our society at least. Normally, you'd have to have for killing, you'd have to have premeditation. A car accident probably doesn't really count, at least in the same way. The second, stealing anything of worth. Did you take these, Lauren? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I took these too. The second is stealing anything of worth. Taking what was not given. Includes cheating on taxes, which we mentioned earlier. And apparently in the Vinaya, there's a long discussion why cheating on your taxes is stealing. They discuss it specifically. Why that needs to be explained so much, I mean, it seems obvious to me, but maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe a lot of, maybe it's really a common thing that people do. And maybe it was common in the time as well. 
so they went into it a lot. Number three, lying about your spiritual life, especially saying he's not emptiness directly, which we talked about. One option here is saying, I've seen emptiness directly, saying that directly. The second are certain other lies that imply that you have high spiritual qualities when you don't. When people come up to you and say that they can see their future lives, this is implying that they've seen emptiness directly. So it's kind of a roundabout way of getting at that. And it's possible, it is possible for a non-Buddhist who's reached high states of meditation to see past lives. That's something different. But if, you know, if you have a fellow practitioner come up to you telling you these things, it might be a roundabout way of trying to say, I've seen emptiness directly. And maybe they have too. We don't really know. But like Lauren mentioned early, earlier, if someone had seen it, it'd be rare for them to say so because it's not a good way to help anybody else. You can't prove it to anybody. It can't be confirmed by the other party. You can't claim to see anything. I mean, you can claim to see anything and nobody else can corroborate it. But to me, that reason doesn't totally make sense. I've never had anybody say that to me, so maybe I haven't been in this situation. But it kind of seems as though it'd be helpful to have someone say that I've seen this because then they're guiding, they can guide you there too. This, this reasoning has never really stuck for me. But maybe if someone says it to me, then I would get it. I probably wouldn't, quite possibly, if someone did say it who was teaching or a fellow Dharma student, it actually might cause me to lose faith in them because I probably wouldn't believe them unless it was someone, a teacher, that I really already thought was enlightened. Maybe that's how it would go. What do you guys think? I would call BS for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it could also mean like lying about your spiritual life, like your intent or, right, or your intentions or... Not just, I mean, I know it's especially with emptiness, but like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's in general, it's doing it for other reasons lying about than yourself, or yeah, right. In general, it's lying about your spiritual life. Yeah. Well, like, I would think saying, yeah, I meditate every single day, and when you don't, yeah, but specifically, they bring up saying that you saw emptiness directly. Mm. What do you think if someone said that to you? Do you think it makes sense, the reasoning? It's not helpful because they can't prove it? Mm. No. But I don't think it leads anywhere. Unless I already thought that they had. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how it wouldn't be helpful in the sense that I probably wouldn't really trust them. Especially if it was a teacher that I was not totally sure of yet, too. 
So I can kind of see how it wouldn't be helpful. Yeah, maybe that's what, he, that's what he's talking about here, is that it can't be confirmed by anyone else. Yeah, I would probably just think that they were lying. Yeah. Or mistaken. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, you don't know. <laughs> um, it's better to use some type of logic or some claim that people can confirm. That's what Gesha Michael says. Because... If you just make wild claims that no one can confirm, then no one who's studying is ever going to be really grounded in the, in the teachings themselves. So then anyone who comes along and says any crazy thing, they'll just go and follow that. Which is why it's really important that we test out all of the teachings for ourselves. And it's not even the... It's not the idea that people have to be following Buddhism, I don't think. And that's why they need to be testing it out so they'll definitely stay with Buddhism. But someone could come along with some harmful idea. And if you're used to not testing things and just following whatever, then you start following that and you end up hurting yourself too. It's a good habit to get into just in general, to check things out, to be really clear, especially with all the Buddhist teachings. Some, you know, after we've studied quite a while and we have deep faith in the teachings, then some of them come along that maybe don't make total sense to us, but we can believe it based on everything else that we know that works for us. But especially when we're starting out, even if we're just starting out with the study of ethics, then it's good to check into all these ourselves. And, and if we're not sure about something, it's really helpful doing meditations on on the topics. I used to do that a lot and it's kind of magical doing a meditation on like a vow like this or something like that because ideas just come to you that are way clearer than what you would have thought sitting in class trying to think about it or hearing it from someone else and it might be the exact same thing that was taught. It might be slightly different but for me it's it usually would really clear things up. Number four, committing adultery, being unfaithful to your spouse or partner, or having sex with another married person. And like we mentioned before, it's not sexual misconduct in Buddhism um, between consenting couples of the opposite sex who are both single. There's not, there's not any problem with that. The fifth one, taking intoxicants. And technically, I've heard of people just leaving this one out, but technically you have to take all of the vows. And Master Dharma Bhadra says that you can't just leave, you can't just take He says that you can't take any kind of intoxicants and take these vows. That's what he says. Basically, 
you can't like pick and choose the Buddha's teachings really that's what it is that's what it comes down to the Buddha himself says in the Abhidharma Kosha Sutra he takes a blade of grass and he said that anyone that drinks or serves the amount of alcohol that fits on the tip of a blade of grass or serves it to another person you don't call yourself a Buddhist it's very clear in the sutra and really it's just not worth it Alcohol makes us really do stupid things. It's totally a waste of money. It hurts your body. Giving it up, I really, I don't miss it at all, having given it up. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> How long ago did you? Yeah. It's, I think it took a while for me, too. And you still, you have friends and family who do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, because it's a huge part of our society. I think it took, I, th I mean, I think like a solid four or five years for me. Because there definitely were times where I wanted to and where it, like, it looks like people are having so much fun and doing, doing fun things. Yeah. Um... But the point is that it clouds the mind and we can't get to where we need to in deep meditation. I know I mentioned to you before, but what about kombucha? It has alcohol in it, technically. It does. So the point is, the point of the vow is, are you taking something that's going to lower your inhibitions and make you do something that you're going to regret? And do you, I don't know, do you think kombucha would? I don't know, you said you're crazy when you drink kombucha. I feel crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't drink caffeine, too, and it has caffeine in it. But for me, I could do something I regretted on it. <laughs> I mean, not probably not something major, but... Well, I mean, this is major, but, you know, like harsh speech or, I don't know, something along those lines. I think this one, it depends probably what the person who gives you the vows says, too. I know Lama Ami drinks kombucha. She, she basically considers, is it going to make, are you going to break your vows if you do this? And so if you are, then no. But basic, but otherwise, it's not like, that doesn't translate then to me get, being able to have a beer or vodka. You know, like that doesn't carry on because kombucha has, what, like maybe 1% yeah, alcohol or something. Yeah, it's naturally occur, um, occurring you know, during fermentation, so I guess, but, yeah. Well, beer. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Which is what he was saying. It doesn't matter if it's naturally occurring or chemical. But, yeah. The question is, is this going to make me do something that I'm going to regret? Is it going to affect me to that point where I'm going to break my vows and I'm going to hurt myself in some way and maybe other people? And for me, probably kombucha is not going to, although I feel really crazy on it. But I, that's why I don't drink it. Because <laughs> I don't like feeling like that. Because I know they love it. 
<laughs> no, it's not crazy for them. Lola and me drinks it all the time. She loves it. And I know Winston loves it. And Mark, I thought, loved it, but he didn't seem like he loved it last night. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So cute. <laughs> okay, this is an additional part of taking the vows. You take this part too. You're vowing never, or you're saying never that you're going to break the advices. I'm going for refuge. Most specifically, not giving up the Dharma jewel which refers to hurting people, which is a tall order, because we hurt people all the time, even when we're trying not to, you know? The essence of all the advices on refuge is to give up hurting other people. Does it mean that when we hurt someone that we've broken our vows? No. What this is talking about more is a philosophical view when you say, forget it, I don't want to, I don't believe there's any point in helping others anymore. It's that sort of thing where you're giving up the very root of the vows and it's a very serious thing. And, I, and for me, just hearing this over and over is a safety. I think it prevents us from ever doing this. There's a story and I can't remember which master it is. Is it Lord Atisha? I don't remember who it is. But, um, but they're practicing being a bodhisattva, or maybe they are a bodhisattva. And somebody, this beggar, asks for his eye, and he takes his eye out and gives it to him. And oh, he, like, oh, maybe. And he, like, drops it on the ground and smashes it just to, just to mess with them, apparently. Big sicko. <laughs> and at that point, in the story at least, it said that he loses it and says, what is the point? These, this is hopeless. And that would be this. Just hearing this sort of thing, not to do this, that it's very serious, I think it's a protection for us that we won't do it. When it comes the time, we'll remember this. If it comes. And then we won't do it. I can't remember the rest of the story, though. Oh, he, I believe it was when, yeah, he was in a monastery. Is this the same story? He was in a monastery, and it seems like a different story. And he, he would tell people that he sees more with his one eye than they see with their two eyes, <laughs> or than they'll ever see with their two eyes, or something like that. Doing this sort of thing, saying, like, there's no point in helping others anymore, there's something called an anti-vow. And when you say that sort of thing, it's the same thing as taking a vow. It forms in your being and grows in your mind stream, just like the other vows. And that, to me, kind of explains, for some things, even when I'm just repeating them as, because it's part of the course, when you say some of these things that 
that are taught as very serious and can break the root of the vows, that sort of thing. Even if you just say them as you're repeating something, you can feel the seriousness of them. So to me, that anti-vow makes a lot of sense in that way. And in Buddhism, I can't remember why he talks about this here, but it's not considered necessary in Buddhist philosophy to give up the eating of meat, but it's strongly encouraged. And the point that most lamas will say is that when you go to the store, you don't say, I'm going to go kill a cow to eat, or you don't have... You can't eat anything that someone's killed especially for you. Otherwise, that would be breaking the vow of killing, that is. Anytime you instigate anyone to do... Oh. <laughs> to do any of these, it's like you're doing it yourself. And there's, there's a big debate on it, and... From what I've seen, different Dharma groups and different teachers land in different places on this one. Like Gaila Rinpoche, my, my parents' teacher in their whole sangha, who, he's an amazing teacher. Um, I mean, I would say he's a master for sure. And he definitely eats me at their group gatherings. They have me, they drink alcohol. It's, it's just different. Um, I don't know that all those people have that vow or not. I have no idea. But then, um, you know, like Geshe Soljum, he's vegetarian. All of our... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, he, so. he, eats, he eats, like, like, milk and butter, right, though? I, so I remember getting him a hamburger last year. No! Oh. Mm-mm. Really? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think it is. I like, really remember like getting him a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you did. I think you got him like a veggie burger or something, if I remember right. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, all the gatherings that we have are veg they're all vegetarian. And which one, you know, which one is better? I don't know. Personally, I eat meat when I tried not eating meat. My body just didn't feel very strong. I could maybe try it again. It might feel different now. But I think it's kind of, it's a personal preference too. And I used to come down really strong on the no eating meat. And I practice with a lot of people who feel one way and a lot who feel the other. And what Geshe Michael's saying in this class is that there's no place, basically speaking, the viewpoint throughout Buddhism is that there's never been in the Vinaya or any place else something that says technically that you can't eat meat. You can't kill an animal. So, you know, you can kind of take that how you take it. If, we, if nobody was eating meat, the animals wouldn't be killed. But you're not technically killing the animal. So it's kind of, I think it's kind of a personal, a personal choice. It depends what your practice is. Like, I know people whose practice, it's a very strong part of their practice not to eat meat because they felt like they've done harm in the past to animals. 
there, it, there's a lot of different different points of it. And I kind of, I do kind of think that the not eating meat seems more right, philosophically speaking. But from what Gisha Michael says, there's really no place in the scripture that says that it has to be that. And it's also, I mean, we've kind of, I feel like we've talked about this so much, but it's also how you're doing it. If you're, if you're vegetarian and you're harshly judging everyone and trying to push them to do the same, it's a lot more violent way of being. If you're, if you're a meat eater, or the opposite, you know, if you're a meat eater and you're like hating all the vegetarians and judging them, and it's just like it depends how you do it, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of different things to consider. And it kind of started because when monks had to beg for their food, they weren't allowed to say, I like this, I don't like that. They had to give, or they had to eat whatever they were given, and sometimes that was meat. Okay. Okay. So all, and all of these vows that we just went over, they'll really change our sensitivity to dharma and our spiritual capacity. That's the point of taking them and the point of keeping them. And some of them that are kind of gray areas are a good place to talk to your teacher or someone close to you that you trust with their decision or their opinion. A teacher would, you know, like someone you see as a teacher would be best. And then you can ask them, what do you suggest for me? Because it's going to be different for different people depending on what our big afflictions are compared to somebody else's. They're all, they're all different. And I think, that, yeah, the main thing with the vegetarian too is I, I kind of think, like, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts Maybe on the subject of it? Mm -hmm. well, I think in the U.S. it's hard to eat meat ethically because we basically mm -hmm. torture animals to death. I don't know. I don't know. And part of me is like, oh, I'd rather have someone kill an animal for me because at least they like did it with kind, like hopefully a little kindness and like intention. Mm. Where right now, like when you read how the meat industry, the kind of like that factory meat production, it seems less kind. Yeah. So I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah. this land for sale and they discovered like the U.S. and, and you know, they were ranchers who came and started, you know, uh, uh, yeah, killing, I mean, killing cows and that industry became so big and so now, like, I think that's what we do and that's kind of what, kind of, uh, yeah, I, I feel guilty, I mean, that's the industry I'm in and, you know, I mean, 
I've always felt conflicted about it. That's why usually I, I go vegan, you know, once, once or twice a year for a while, so. Yeah. Yeah, we have this, like, celebration of eating meat, too. It's, like, all the bacon fests and stuff like that. Like, there's a way to be functional, and then there's a way we're also, like, celebrating. Where it's, like, gluttonous. Yeah, and, like, when you really think about it, it's, like, oh, we're celebrating, like, something getting slaughtered for us to eat. And, like, how everyone's, like, obsessed with bacon. It's, like, super trendy. It's, like, that's, that's like, a life, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, there, it's probably not, like, one extreme or the other. Yeah. There's also, like, if you are eating it, then you eat what what you need for your body. And yeah. don't, like, don't buy way more than you need because there's way more out there than anybody's going to eat. I don't even know what they do with all the meat yeah, in the stores. Waste, that's what I mean. like, it's, cr- it's crazy. Well, and have respect for what the, an- like, the life that the animal had and what they gave to you. To yeah. I think that's, like, the piece maybe that's missing in popular culture and yeah. maybe that's, like, different in Buddhism. If you eat meat, you're offering it. And I mean, I've, I've worked in restaurants and a grocery store where I've seen, you know, hundreds of pounds of beef and, like, 30, 40 pounds of chicken just get thrown out. Mm-hmm. You know? It's just, like... I don't, I think it'd be better to have a shortage like you can you can get meat at the store, but they only have a certain amount, and then you can't. Then it's gone. Yeah, like if people didn't buy as much, there wouldn't be as much in the stores. Mm-hmm. I don't think, unless it's like subsidized to. I mean, it's too big. To of, where, it's too you big know? of an industry. If they if they try to do that, you know, the you know, they'd have lobbyists, you know, lobbying, you know, for the meat industry, and then. Mm-hmm. But if people aren't buying it, true. Then people then they're, they're not selling it. That's true. There's maybe like a middle ground of you don't have to eat meat every meal and yeah. maybe like once a day if you need to or a few times a week or, and then, you know, balance in other ways, like take care of the planet in other ways. And yeah, because I think that's what families did, you know, way back was, you know, you had some chickens and you maybe had a cow, you had a pig and you to support your family. Um, yeah. Not just over-consume. Okay, with the, like we were saying, with the vows, they'll change our sensitivity to dharma and our spiritual capacity. If you have any idea to take them, then do it. They're not that difficult. We're basically talking to Mike. <laughs> Geshe Michael says, we're reaching the point where he can't tell us all the vows, we'll just go over a general overview. We'd have to take them to know them. This is the last slide. Say, get sul. Get sul. And this is the 13 novice monk vows, which fall into three categories. The first one says, sawashi. 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 Yen lak druk. Yen lak druk. Yen lak druk. Lang de sum. Lang de sum. Lang de sum. So these are the general categories. The first one, these aren't really new, right? No. 
maybe the third one, but for the most part, we're familiar with these. The first one, Sawashi, is basically a combination of the four primary. Sex, stealing, killing, lying. Same as the four, or the root four one-day vows. The second one, Yen Lok Druk, six secondary, are handling money, luxury, items, intoxicants, dancing, etc., flowers, and eating afternoon. And the third, Lang De Sum, three transgressions, disrespecting the person who gave you the vows. These are, we haven't gone over these yet. Keeping your lay appearance, failing to take up a month's appearance. So wearing robes and keeping short hair. Then there's all sorts of technicalities that we won't go into. So how many, how many do these add up to? These, yeah. Thirteen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thirteen, that's the basic structure of taking the novice monk's vows for your life. And actually, I remember, we have some time left, so I'm, I'll just tell this story and then I think we'll do meditation. But I remember with the dancing and... Um, listening to music and that sort of thing. I was studying, we were studying something and I brought music, like I was presenting a part and Lama Mi was, was teaching and she danced too. And it was really fun, like all of us were dancing. It was really fun time, it was really good music and I found out later that Lama Mi hurt her knee and then she had knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something like something to do with this vow. It, I mean, it was part of a Dharma teaching that I was trying to go for, but I always think about that when I, when I see this vow now. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> oh, wait. Let me see what the meditation is for this class. So in a few classes, we're going to go through all of the karmic correlations, which is really cool. We'll do the meditation that's the, the meditation for this week's homework.
just settling in. And remember the sequence of relaxing that we did in the beginning. Going through that in a shorter version. The eyes and the forehead. Relaxing from the inside out. and jaw and tongue. Throat and shoulders. Feeling from the inside out. arms and hands, belly and pelvis, and feeling from the inside out the length and volume of both legs. both feet from the inside out. <coughs> We're gonna go through the five Lifetime layperson bounds. Starting with the first, killing a human or human fetus. Think about the closest you've come to doing something like that in the past 24 hours. It might not be very close, it could be taking care of yourself or someone else. Maybe killing a bug. Rejoice in something that was as far away from that as you can think of. Some way that you really protected life. Think of one thing and hold that rejoicing.
a second, stealing anything of worth that was not freely given. It's the closest you've come to doing that in the last 24 hours. Rejoice in some way that you did the opposite in the last 24 hours. Three, lying about your spiritual life, especially saying that you've seen emptiness directly when you haven't. Think of the closest that you've come to that in the last 24 hours. Rejoice in the furthest away, the opposite that you've done in the last 24 hours. Four, committing adultery, being unfaithful to your spouse or partner, or having sex with another married person. It's the closest that you've come to that in the last 24 hours.
what's the farthest away from that that you've done in the last 24 hours? Number five, taking intoxicants. What's the closest you've come to that in the last 24 hours? the furthest away. Something you've done to clear your mind, stabilize your focus, strengthen your vows. Relaxing back into the physical sense, your body. And as we close with the prayers, offering all the merit of being here for whole practice with an understanding of emptiness to reaching full awakening in this life for the sake of all beings. Using the closing prayers with that. Buki chip shing me tok chum. We rabbling shin yen dek and paddy. Sangi shing do lick te wargi. Oh. Sure.